Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day, and I am continuing doing the Draft Deep Dives on specific players with my co-host for the Draft Deep Dives section of the podcast, hashtag basketball draft expert, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing today? Nick, I am busy, but very excited. We got great finals basketball going on. Draft is rapidly approaching much quicker than I anticipated, but I'm I'm good. I'm a lot lot of basketball out there with finals, Olympics, U nineteen stuff. So a lot lot of fun stuff to consume. A lot of basketball going on right now, and we certainly have some exciting prospects to talk about today. Even though, spoiler alert, one of these prospects is certainly rather frustrating and the kind of prospect that tends to frustrate both of us, but that is not the prospect that we are starting with today. Today, we are starting with Nashawn Bones Highland out of VCU, who really his strengths are going to be as a shot creator and a ball handler at the next level. He's got a decently quick shot with a bit of a low release. He's got crazy long arms. I think the report out of the draft combine was that he's 6'3 with like a 6'9 wingspan. And sometimes when people say that players have plus wingspans, it's a bit hard to see. But I mean... With guys like Mikhail Bridges and Bones Highland, you can really see just how crazy long their arms are, and certainly those long arms help him finishing around the rim. He's someone who can finish pretty effectively with either hand, 83rd percentile offensively per synergy, 86th percentile in transition, only 58th percentile in possessions plus assists, and he had a 0.7 assist to turnover ratio which is not good, especially given that at 6'3", he's going to spend a lot of time on the ball as a point guardish type in the NBA. 65th percentile defensively, mostly driven by good luck on spot-up numbers, but again, that crazy wingspan really does come into play on the defensive end of the floor. So just sort of to start out, what are your thoughts on the strengths for Bones Highland heading into this draft year? One of the common things I think we're going to end up talking a lot about today is just scoring and microwave scoring, and Bones Island is the personification of that. He's one of the most fun, just pure microwave scorers in this class, and when he gets hot, it's really hard to do anything to shut him down. He's a solid shooter off the dribble. I think some of his numbers aren't as impressive as, as other guys in this class because of some of the shot selection issues and how deep he's willing to pull up. He has really impressive range for a college player, which is encouraging, projecting him forward to the NBA. His spot-up numbers are really impressive, 96th percentile overall, 93rd percentile shooting off the catch when spotting up, and I anticipate that the majority of his role will come as an off-ball guard it's it'll be a little tough because he's only 6-3 the wingspan will help him a little bit on defense but if you compare him with a plus size point guard or a wing initiator someone like that I think it could be a really interesting offensive fit and then he's not a very good on-ball defender but I do generally like his team defense he has really quick hands and the wingspan definitely comes into play there and does a decent job of jumping passing lanes and being a bit of a defensive playmaker so he he won't be a positive on the defensive end 
but I don't think he'll be a complete negative like so many microwave scorers get pegged as. Yeah, he's sort of a prototypical six-man type for me in the sense that I don't think he's ever going to be good enough as a primary on-the-ball guy to be a starting point guard. I think size is going to be a real issue with having him be a starting two-guard at the NBA level, but I mean, if you have him coming off the bench for 25 minutes a game, you know, as long as he can play okay defense, maybe not even above average defense, but just not disastrous defense, and, you know, he's the kind of player that can get around bigger guys just with his speed and certainly, you know, with his long arms. He's not really going to be shooting over people exactly, but I guess the best way for me to put that is given his wingspan and his 6'3 height, I'm honestly a little bit more worried about his size in terms of just how skinny he is. I mean, he's listed at 165 pounds and he's going to get pushed around at the NBA level certainly more on the defensive end, I think, than the offensive end, because he's not exactly someone who relies on post-ups to score. But that size, I think I'm more worried about his frame than I am worried about his height, because at 6'3", with the wingspan he has, he's big enough, in theory, to be at either guard spot, but he's definitely going to get shoved around a lot on the defensive end early in his NBA career. The Bones nickname was definitely well-earned. Yeah, he's very, very lean. It's going to be an issue on defense, especially early in his career. But that's where the whole roster construction and rotation construction comes into play. And if if you are going to have him at that two or for some reason that three spot and he's going to have to defend up, he will routinely be targeted and it won't go well. But if you can play him defensively in that point guard role, then I think it's a lot more encouraging for what he could be, and he'll be less of a negative overall because his offense will be able to make more of an impact and outweigh the negatives of his defense because he won't be routinely targeted by these bigger wings. If he's put into more of a traditional lineup where they have that smaller traditional point guard instead of a bit a jumbo initiator or a wing initiator and it it, it will be more difficult because his primary or his preferable defensive assignment will be taken by someone who's even smaller than him so i like bones a lot but it, i think situation is going to be really 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 important for him Yeah, I would agree with that. And the other thing that I would watch with him is that, you know, we sort of argued before about how much importance we place on defensive stats, especially at the prospect level. But one thing that I think is key for me is that his steal rate really jumped, not just, you know, his total steal numbers from his freshman year to his sophomore year, but his steal percentage went from 2.4 to 3.5%. And You know, as I said before in the Draft Philosophy podcast, one of the numbers that really tends to translate over nearly exactly from prospect level to the NBA level is steal rate and steal percentages. And, you know, if he's going to be a guy who's primarily on point guards and, you know, can poke the ball away and get out in transition, he's an excellent transition player. And him playing in transition sort of mutes his relative lack of passing skill in the half court. You know, if he's contributing defensively in that way, both 
ripping the ball from guys on ball and also maybe jumping into passing lanes off ball, then I think he can make up for at least some of the deficiencies that are inherent in the fact that, you know, as you said, the Bones nickname is well-earned. He's not exactly the thickest guy on the court at any given time. And that defensive playmaker role is really where what he's going to have to excel at to get those minutes. And you, you mentioned it earlier, he's going to get clobbered on screens. He will get blown by. He doesn't have the greatest on-ball defensive fundamentals. A lot of his, instead of bending at the knees to get in a defensive stance, it's a lot at the hips a lot of the time. So he's generally pretty upright in his stance, which is never good. But he has really quick hands and really uses uses that wingspan that we talked about earlier to his full advantage. So if if he can force a couple turnovers a game, one or two, or get a deflection here and there, it will it'll just do wonders for his overall impact and help him stay on the floor because he can be a really positive offensive contributor. Now, he really can be a positive offensive contributor, and I don't want to gloss over that, but I do also want to bring up his passing because, again, as I mentioned earlier, that 0.7 assist-to-turnover ratio is very concerning, and it's not that he's a black hole exactly. You know, he's not someone who just every time he touches the ball, it's automatically going up no matter where he is on the court. But the flip side of that is that if he's going to be a sixth-man type at the NBA level, he's going to at least be able to, or he'll need to be able to involve his teammates to at least some degree rather than shooting every single time the ball touches his hands. And I'm a bit concerned about that. I mean, he certainly can be, you know, a lesser contributor than a sixth-man, you know, maybe just a off-the-end-of-the-bench guy who's going to be a microwave scorer type, but if you can double him and just completely cut him off from the rest of the game, that's going to be a bit of a problem for him as well. So I don't think you're taking him for his passing upside by any means. I, I get what you're saying. I don't think he's a complete ball stopper. I wasn't super encouraged by the scoring on VCU. I thought he was head and shoulders above everyone else on that roster, and a bit just raw ability to put it in the basket um but he he's not going to be a point guard he's not going to be a playmaker by any means it's going to be more of a Malik Monk it's Jalen Noel Jamal Crawford type um where he's this really good ball handler dynamic scorer and if you can get any playmaking out of him it'll be a huge plus but it's not something I'm really gonna expect so now quickly before we move on, first of all, best guess at ceiling slash floor for him and sort of how we view him as a prospect overall. He's someone who's definitely risen up draft boards in the last few months. And when you look at his offensive highlights, you can certainly see why. I mean, he can just put up buckets in numbers. And so when I'm thinking about my sort of best guess for his ceiling and floor, I think the floor for him is six or seven year NBA career as like a 10th or 11th man just only shoots and scores kind of player. But the upside for him, I don't think he's ever a starter, but I also think that at his absolute ceiling, he's someone who could win a six man of the year award or two. I, yeah, I, I think that's pretty 
right online. Um, I, I, I see decent spot starter for maybe at his peak, but most like most likely used in that bench spark plug scoring role for pretty much his entire career and during his peak, um, if if everything goes right, one one surprise me at all if he's in the running for some of those postseason awards. All right, let's move on now to Chris Duarte out of Oregon. And for him, the calling cards are going to be shooting and defense. I mean, he's pretty much as close to the prototypical 3 and D prospect as you can get. On the defensive end, he's really good at jumping into passing lanes and disrupting things off ball. He's a decently explosive athlete. You know, he's not Keon Johnson kind of level of athlete, but pretty much no one is. But he's good enough as an athlete and certainly has a few surprising athletic dunks in his highlight reels. Absolutely beautiful jump shot. And when you're looking at the advanced numbers, he's in the 95th percentile offensively per synergy, 94th percentile as a spot-up shooter, 94th percentile as a pick-and-roll ball handler, 92nd percentile in transition, 84th percentile off screens. The thing that surprised me the most about his synergy numbers is that he's in the 10th percentile defensively, and as we will get into in a little bit more depth with the next prospect, there are certainly times when you don't want to rely on those defensive numbers, and Duarte's defensive percentile versus the defensive percentiles of the guy we're going to discuss next is some of the best evidence I've ever seen for not trusting those numbers, but... You know, with Duarte, he's going to be 24 by the time his first NBA season starts, which is why he's talked about towards the end of the first round rather than earlier in the first round. But the skill set for him is a skill set that is deeply valued in the NBA. And, you know, maybe the defensive numbers are a bit of a bad portent for him, but I think he's very solid at the defensive end, certainly on his off-ball defense. And... Again, the jump shot is just beautiful, and I would be shocked if he cannot knock down three-pointers consistently at the NBA level. Yeah, I, I fully expect him to have like a Desmond Bain-esque impact. Um, he's And he turned 24 last month, so he's ancient in terms of prospects. And, you know, that, that has the downsides are that his, on the devel- developmental curve, he's probably you know there's very little room for him to grow the plus side is that if he goes to a contender he can likely fit into a rotation very quickly and help contribute to winning basketball and that's something that he did all season long was make the right winning play and Duarte is not my favorite wing in this class but you know exactly what you're getting from him and what you're getting is a lights out shooter uh, 95th percentile off the catch, 94th percentile off the bounce. You're getting a really smart ball mover. You're getting a really smart cutter, really smart defender. So there isn't a ton of room for for growth there. If I'm a bad team, I'm probably not taking a swing on him because it just wouldn't make sense with where they're at in their championship pursuit lifespan. But if I'm a fringe playoff team, if I'm a contender, if I'm looking to take to bolster my wing depth and take that jump from good to great or playoff fringe to home court advantage, Duarte is really that guy in this draft who I think can help 
propel a rotation and a team to those levels. Yeah, there was a reason that I took him for the Lakers at 22nd overall in our mock yeah. draft, namely that I think that's the right range for him. And, you know, we have him here as the 25th prospect in our individual prospect deep dives for a reason as well. You know, he's someone that makes a lot of sense towards the end of the first round. I would push back a little bit, though, especially as someone who watches a ton of Sacramento Kings basketball. You know, (laughs) if he's available early in the second round for a team that's really struggling, which is, you know, what tends to happen if you're picking towards the early part of the second round, I would definitely want to take a flyer on Chris Duarte because just having someone like him as the seventh guy in your rotation, you can know every night going in, okay, he can give us 15 to 20 minutes of quality defense, making the right reads on offense, and shooting really, really well. You know, that's something that can bolster pretty much any team in the league. And yes, it makes a lot more sense for a championship-type roster to take a swing on him as an extra piece because he doesn't have the same kind of upside that you would want if you're a terrible team. But the flip side of that is that he could be really helpful for a terrible team's development just as a younger player, but a player that you know is going to be solid in the ways that you need him to be solid every night as a 3 and D wing type. Absolutely. If if he's there in the second round, 100%, I think there's a 0% chance that he gets to the second round. He's one of these guys who's shut down his workouts and combine stuff pretty early. So it, it a lot of people are thinking that he already has a promise from a team. So if if he even gets to 25, I'd be pretty surprised. I think he'll end up going in that 14 to 20 range. Uh, I'm not sure who, but it it really seems like he has a promise, uh, first round promise already. So uh, yeah, but yeah, if if he was there in the 30s, I'm 100% taking him. I just don't think I would spend a lottery pick on him if I'm one of these bad teams. And after that, I don't think they have a chance in hell at getting him that's fair enough and yeah i definitely don't think he's the kind of prospect that you want to take in the lottery if only for job security reasons it's a lot easier (laughs) to sell the team owner on oh hey he's only 19 he's got tons of room to develop rather than "Eh, he's 24 already but let's use that as a way to pivot to talking about weaknesses slash concerns for duarte and The biggest one is sort of the most obvious kind of red flag one of, oh, he's already 24. And it's a bit hypocritical of me to say this as someone who was not a fan of the Cam Johnson at 11 pick at the time. But, you know, the flip side of that is even though I wasn't particularly pleased with the Cam Johnson at 11 selection, I also thought pretty clearly that he's going to be one of the best spot up shooters in this class. And he's at least going to be a decent NBA player just because he's 6'9 and has that jump shot. And with Duarte, yes, he's going to be 24, but he's also going to be 6'6 and he's going to have that jump shot, you know? So I think the range for him, as you mentioned, outside of the lottery, but certainly before the end of the first round makes a lot of sense. But, you know, if we're talking about weaknesses or concerns beyond the age thing, which really is just kind of a cap on his upside more than telling anything about his actual play on the court in terms of his actual play on the court I think the biggest concern for me is just that he's not as good at scoring at the rim 
anywhere near as good at scoring around the rim as he is at scoring beyond the three-point line. And he's not someone who isn't going to be able to do anything with the ball if he's forced off the line. You know, as you said, he's a really good decision maker and he's someone who's going to make the extra pass rather than, you know, try and take a terrible shot. And more to the point than that, you know, it's not like he has no handle or no ability to drive to the basket at all. It's just that that isn't a strength for him. And if he was better at that, you know, maybe he would be someone that teams would consider in the lottery. But I mean, really the thing with Duarte is that you're picking him for the skills that he's good at. And certainly I think we both agree that he's good enough at those skills that his weaknesses don't matter as much. But the flip side of that is it is a bit concerning that he's not that good at scoring around the basket. Yeah, and just to just for reference on the age, so Devin Booker and Jalen Brown are already 24, and Darren Fox is 23. Those are three guys who it seems like they've been in our lives in the NBA forever, and Chris Duarte is entering as a rookie at the same age. So when you look at kind of where they're at in their development curves and what kind of impact they can have, you know, it's it, it's tough to really invest a first round guaranteed contract in my mind at least on someone who's almost peaked in where they're at skill skill wise um the at, at the rim stuff i think is okay you mentioned it earlier and he there are a couple times like once every couple games where he just has like this wild athletic dunk and it is shocking because he he doesn't play like this super athletic guy, but then every now and then he'll throw one down. My bigger concern is what he can do just creating his shot in general. And I think that's where the lack of athleticism and kind of rudimentary ball handling comes into play. In isolation, His when he took a jumper, he's only in the 63rd percentile, and that's a pretty drastic drop from where all of his other scoring numbers are. His isolation passes were only in the 57th percentile. So he, while those are still above average, it's not great for what his creation ability projects to. And I think almost all of his offense is going to have to be created by someone else or him running off screens or receiving driving kick kickouts and attacking closeouts. So, I don't think if he's given the ball late in the clock, he's a good enough shooter where he could make something happen, but I don't think he's a good enough athlete or ball handler or passer to really create a great opportunity. Yeah, he's an explosive vertical athlete, as you see by those occasional mind-blowing dunks, but he's not that great laterally. He's good enough, especially on the defensive end laterally, but Definitely, as you mentioned, the ability to create shots for himself is going to be an issue. I think I'm less worried about that just because he's so ridiculously good as a spot-up guy and also yep. as an off-screen guy. And, you know, also more to the point, I mean, if you're talking about weaknesses for Duarte, yes, his ability to create shots for himself is definitely a weakness, and that's going to be an issue. But the flip side of that is... I don't think NBA teams are going to want him to try and create looks for himself. And I don't think they would want him to try and create looks for himself, even if he was better at it than he is, you know, because he's such a good spot up guy and such a good off screen guy that that's going to be the best way to use him anyway. And 
you know, this is going to sound ridiculous, and I don't mean to compare them at all other than in passing, but, you know, Reggie Miller wasn't that great at creating looks for himself with the ball in his hands. He was mostly a guy who ran off screens and got looks for himself because he was just a relentless, you know, running up and down the floor kind of guy. And Clay Thompson sort of similarly, you know, if you are relentless enough as an off-ball player, you can make up for not having the greatest handle in the world and not being the greatest athlete in the world. And to be entirely clear, I want to reiterate, Chris Duarte is two tiers below Clay Thompson and Reggie Miller, <laughs> at minimum two tiers below those guys. But, you know, the idea is even when you're a Hall of Famer, like, Reggie Miller, it's okay if you're not creating for yourself with the ball in your hands that much, if you're that good at running off screens and getting yourself open that way. And I have confidence in Chris Duarte being able to run himself open and, you know, the spot ups he's even better at than the off screen looks. You know, if he's the fourth or fifth guy that you have to pay attention to on the offensive end, you know, he's going to get a lot of open shots. And I'm pretty confident that he'll be able to knock those down. Absolutely, and that's what makes pairing him with, say, that Lakers rotation really intriguing because you have at least two guys, or at least one Hall of Famer on the court at essentially all times who has so much gravity and the ability to find those open shooters. So when you insert Duarte into that role, it's almost an immediate upgrade in the vast majority of rotations, and it's really encouraging to just see what or how much he can improve a rotation and the the Mavericks don't have a first round pick this year but if they did I would love him playing alongside Luca I think that'd be an incredible fit and we we've mentioned these guys a couple times but that that Cam Cam Johnson that Desmond Bain even you know that Pat Connaughton role those guys are really important to rotations, and even though they can't do much in on-ball creation, their shooting, their two-way impact, it's all really important. It all pulls the defense in a certain direction when they're running off screens, so it's a unique skill set. It It's an important skill set, and it's something that Duarte is kind of almost mastered already as he comes into the league as a rookie. So before we move on to the next prospect, just quick discussion of best guess at ceiling and floor and sort of how we view him as a prospect overall. I think Chris Duarte has one of the narrowest bands in this entire draft between his ceiling and his floor. I think maybe, maybe, maybe his upside is like fifth starter on a playoff team. The flip side of that is I think his floor is very high. I would be shocked if he does not make it to a second NBA contract as a rotation 3 and D type of player. Yeah, he he's definitely living in a ranch-style home with no basement. I, I think you nailed it. He's going to be in the NBA for the next 10 years, and he will be contributing to contending rosters. And I I highly expect him to be on more good teams and bad teams and as a spot starter in a couple years potentially but I don't think he ever makes that high-end starter I don't think he's ever the fourth most important guy in a rotation but he will certainly add a really important wing depth and now we move on to an incredibly different player almost 
the opposite of Chris Duarte in many ways, Cam Thomas out of LSU. And similar to Bones Highland, the calling card for him is going to be scoring and shot creation. He has well beyond NBA three-point line range. He will shoot from absolutely anywhere at absolutely any time. He's got a solid floater game. The jumper is a bit slow, kind of like a two-motion shot, but it certainly works for him. He was in the 87th percentile offensively and above average in every single primary category on Synergy except for putbacks. He was also in the 95th percentile scoring as a pick-and-roll ball handler. On the flip side, he was in the 59th percentile of possessions plus assists, and again, a 0.8 assist-to-turnover ratio. Never good sign when you're turning the ball over more than you're creating assists when you're a 6'3 guard. Now, I brought this up with Duarte. Cam Thomas, of all people, is somehow in the 52nd percentile defensively per synergy, which definitely makes me side-eye those numbers when you've got Duarte in the 10th percentile and Cam Thomas, who as we have discussed before, is allergic to defensive effort, somehow ends up in the 52nd percentile. But really for Cam Thomas, he's the kind of player that, as we talked about during the Draft Philosophy podcast, can be very, very frustrating to both of us, namely someone who scores a ton but isn't the most efficient guy in the world and is very empty calories outside of his scoring punch. But That being said, you know, his scoring highlights alone will make him someone that certainly gets looks higher up in the first round than where you have him right now on the top 75 at 26th overall. Yeah, I mean, Cam Thomas is one of the guys I have the most trouble with. Um, And he he left high school as Oak Hill's all-time leading scorer. For reference, guys like Kevin Durant and Carmelo Anthony also attended that high school. Um, he's he's a bona fide scorer, and the reason I have so much trouble with him is because he does have that elite skill of scoring, which I do expect to translate to the NBA. And the big thing with him is what is his coach's tolerance level going to be for him not doing anything else on the floor? His defense is appalling. Uh, he he does have one of the lowest turnover rates in the country, but that's because he shoots everything and never passes. And he still had a um, negative assist to turnover ratio. <laughs> Even with one of the lowest turnover rates in the country, he still had a negative assist to turnover ratio. It's genuinely yeah, shocking. It, it's it's wild. And, and he's one of these weird scorers where I don't think you can really put a ton of stock into his percentages because... I do think he is a good shooter. I do think he will be a good shooter, but his percentages, I think it's like 34% from three. That's not good, but that's, I, so much of that is due to shot selection and that is going to be his biggest thing. I don't think Will Wade is a very good coach at LSU. I think he pretty much just tries to get the best talent he can and rolls the ball out and let's, and says, well, let's go play. And I'm really hoping that with some direction, with some bumpers on his game, that Cam Thomas can kind of pivot and be that more efficient and have that more selective shot selection. But if he doesn't, um, I would be pretty surprised if he doesn't start getting pulled and seeing his minutes decline pretty quickly. But that that elite scoring skill set 
is there, and that is really enticing, and it really wouldn't surprise me if he goes in the lottery. I mean, sometimes that absolutely conscience-free shooting touch turns a player into Donovan Mitchell, and sometimes it turns that player into Dion Waiters, and I certainly think that Cam Thomas is a lot closer to Dion Waiters than he is to guys who actually make all-star games, but the flip side of that, you know, as we discussed when I put him at 30th on my big board is I can't drop him out of the first round because that scoring upside is there and I expect enough of it to translate that he's worth a first round pick but I think that if he goes in the lottery there's a very good chance that that turns out to really be a big mistake for that team I mean if he can rein in his shot selection a bit when he's playing alongside other NBA players, then there's definitely a really good NBA-level player in Cam Thomas. But the fact that he's Oak Hill's leading scorer of all time both is an incredibly impressive mark on his resume and also is incredibly concerning to me because Oak Hill is one of the best high school basketball programs in the country and Clearly, he was playing alongside top-level guys while he was there and still managed to put up enough shots to pass Carmelo Anthony and Kevin Durant's scoring records. So for, for, for me, I'm there. when you watch him, he does pull off these incredible like mid-range turnarounds where he squares, squares his body while in midair. And if you look, go and look through Bradley Beal's highlight reel, you'll see the exact same shot. And you think, okay, how how do I not invest in this guy? How do I not buy into this 18-year-old who already has this skill set and footwork and scoring sense? And then you watch eight more possessions in a row, and it's a bunch of really, really bad shots. And, you know, I, I try to keep my expectations lower on these guys, so I, I don't want to just throw the Bradley Beal tag on him. But I think best case for him is like a Jordan Clarkson and Jordan Clarkson's career has not been a smooth one. It took quite a while for him to find that role in Utah and that team and that coaching staff to really empower him to be who he is and accept who he is. And every stop he had before that was pretty messy, really inefficient, didn't lead to winning basketball. And I kind of see that same path for Cam Thomas, while they're not identical players, I see that same path where it could be two, three, four teams down the road until he really finds that home and where he belongs and somewhere where he can fit in and buy into a specific role. They're very different players, so I don't want to lean too heavily on this comparison, but in a lot of ways... I think that the downside concerns for Cam Thomas are similar to what ended up happening to Frank Mason III in his career, where, you know, again, they're very different. Cam Thomas is an 18-year-old shooting guard type. Frank Mason was a 23-year-old point guard type. But when the Kings drafted Frank Mason, I very much expected him to slot into, okay, he's going to be the very competent team manager type backup point guard for this team for a decade. And Instead, he just fell in love with his own shot so much after he won that National Player of the Year award that he would just shoot himself out of the rotation constantly, and he wouldn't be the kind of primary point guard type that maybe if he'd 
been that earlier in his career, he might have been able to stick around and find that sort of decade-long home in the NBA like I thought. But, you know, again, Cam Thomas is not going to be expected to be a point guard, so it's definitely different on that front. But I think there's a similar dynamic to be found if you mine deep enough that, you know, if he falls too much in love with his own shot, he could very easily shoot himself out of the NBA. You know, maybe the Dion Waiters comp, I think, makes more sense in that front that, you know, yes, he does have that kind of upside where at his absolute best moments, he can remind you of a Brad Beal or a Donovan Mitchell type. But, you know, the flip side is if he falls in love with his shot too much, you know, it's harder to score at the NBA level than it is at the college level. And if his 40% field goal percentage and 33, 34% three point percentage, you know, if that falls to 35% from the floor and 30% from three because he continues to take that same kind of diet of shots against much tougher defenses. I mean, that kind of player busts out of the league really quickly, especially if, like Cam Thomas, he's not contributing anything other than scoring. And that's where I think what team he goes to matters so much because if he gets paired with one of these old school coaches like a Rick Carlisle or Tom Thibodeau or like a Steve Clifford, those guys who require and demand so much on both ends of the floor from their players and don't really have a lot of tolerance for young guys screwing up a lot i i don't see it being great for his development because he is going to be one of these guys who screws up a lot and that that that's all part of development so if if he's allowed to fail then i i do think he has the potential to really develop into a really deadly scorer because those instincts are there the footwork the shot creation it's all pretty good he's pretty unaffected by defenders and not intimidated by anyone but like we said that that can go two ways that that can either turn him into a really dynamic deadly scorer or he can shoot himself out of the league So on that note, let's transition to talking about best guess at ceiling and floor and sort of how we view him as a prospect overall. I think we've both made it clear at various times throughout various iterations of this podcast that Cam Thomas is the kind of player that frustrates us endlessly. And if we're talking about best guess at ceiling floor, I mean, he is the opposite of Chris Duarte in this regard, in my mind. I think if everything goes right, He could maybe even make an all-star game just because he's that kind of explosive scorer if everything goes right. On the flip side, if everything goes wrong, I don't think he gets a second contract in the NBA. Yeah, I I, I think his ceiling's even a little higher than that, where if, if he does turn, if the scoring is legitimate and he continues to take that next step every single year, it wouldn't surprise me if he's a 25 plus point per game scorer. I I don't think that's super likely. I don't think that's like his 60th percentile outcome. I think that's more like 90th. But the the odds of him just burying himself at the back of a rotation because he because he doesn't play defense. He's unaware off ball. He gets blown by constantly. He doesn't move the ball. He takes these bad shots. He's constantly pulling up in the mid range and not making any anything. Then. I just see coach, a coach losing their patience with him really, really, really quickly. All right. So before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to do a brief sort of side-by-side comparison of 
Bones Highland and Cam Thomas because I think they have very similar archetypes as you know six three six four scoring guard types who are probably going to be asked to defend both guard spots at the NBA level and play both guard spots to some degree. For me, I think where the comparison becomes really interesting is I think that Bones Highland kind of has a narrower band, especially if we're talking about ceiling floor, where with Highland, you know, he's got the tools and at least occasionally has the effort to be a solid defensive player, whereas we've seen absolutely no evidence of that from Cam Thomas at all. But I guess the other side of it is that I was kind of surprised that Bones had a negative assist-to-turnover ratio. You know, I expected him to be about even. He's not a primary passer type. But the fact that Cam Thomas had one of the lowest turnover rates in the country and still had a negative assist-to-turnover ratio is very telling. But it's interesting because with both players, you know, their success at the NBA level is going to look very similar. But the difference in 95th percentile outcomes is, I think, different, you know, especially when we're talking about upside of Cam Thomas being maybe all-star 25-point-per-game scorer type. Like, if Cam Thomas turns out to have a Zach Levine work ethic, you know, maybe we're talking about him as an all-star in, like, year seven or eight, but it takes him a long winding road to get there. Whereas with Bones, I don't really think he's got much of a chance at being an all-star, but if he does really get a lot better as a playmaker, maybe he ends up having a much higher floor than Cam Thomas just because of the defensive tools that he has that Thomas really doesn't. I I, I tend to lean Cam Thomas pretty easily over Bones just because I think there is a really wide disparity in their ceilings. And if I can get Cam Thomas to hit that, then I kind of hit the jackpot with that two that scoring two guard and it could be really exciting and really valuable it's i i think he's one of the the biggest lottery tickets in this class but i i agree that i that the floor for bones is a little higher it wouldn't surprise me if he if he ends up getting played off the court because of those physical limitations and he just can't handle the defensive end but i trust his shooting way more than i trust cam's I, I think Bones is one of the best scorers or shooters in this class. He can shoot off the dribble. He has really good mechanics, even when he's falling to his side or backwards or leaning forwards and creating weird angles off the bounce. So from a, just a purely shooting perspective, I think that keeps Bones in the league a little longer than Cam if things, if that scoring progression and overall progression for cam doesn't really develop like i like i hope it does so in my top 30 big board that we did a little over a month ago at this point i had cam thomas at 30 because i couldn't drop him out of the first round and that's you know i had bones out of the first round if i'm remembering correctly i don't want to sound like an idiot by being completely wrong here uh yes (laughs) i did in fact have bones out of the first round and the reason for that is, you know, sort of what you said, where it's like Cam is just such a wild swing and the floor is so low, but the ceiling is so high. Whereas with Highland, you know, the floor I think is higher because it's a lot easier to buy into him as a shooter, more as an off ball shooter, honestly, just because 
if both of them have the ball in their hands all the time, it's either going to be wonderful or a disaster for their teams. But ultimately, I could leave Bones out of my first round, and I did, in fact, leave him out of my first round. Whereas with Thomas, even though he's endlessly frustrating to me as a prospect, and the archetype of what is endlessly frustrating to me as a prospect, that ceiling just makes it nearly impossible for me to see him falling out of the first round and honestly as you said there's a chance that he goes in the lottery if some team just falls in love with his highlights enough to completely ignore the literally everything else that he does on the floor and if you're one of these contenders in the 20s and say cam does you know if he does keep falling it will be really difficult for teams to pass up that immense potential he could be that guy that ends up prolonging your contender status instead of immediately jumpstarting it. But it will be a really fascinating decision for teams to make. But I, I, I just get this sense that he's probably going in the lottery just because of how unique and impressive that his overall scoring instincts and versatility is. I will say that if the Kings take him at number nine overall, I definitely will not be available for our post-draft <laughs> wrap-up podcast because I will be vomiting into the bushes and sobbing repeatedly. But if he I, does start falling on draft night, I would be shocked if he falls beyond Houston's third first-round pick at 24. Yeah, you know, Maybe even a team trades up for one of 23 or 24 to take him. You know, in our mock draft, he fell to Philadelphia at 28, which is pretty much a perfect fit for him. But, you know, given how teams tend to value upside and superstar upside, Kim Thomas has enough of that superstar upside that I would be shocked if he falls to one of those two Houston picks at 23-24, that I think there's virtually no chance at all that he falls beyond that second Houston pick. I tend to agree. I, that, that's a perfect home run swing Houston's going to hopefully at least get a almost a surefire all-star at two and with those 23 and 24 I think they are um with those two picks they they have they're at that stage where they can just take those huge lottery ticket swings and hope for the best if it doesn't pan out so what you missed on a pick in the 20s like everyone else does every year and if it hits then your rebuild just gets jump push forward in in its timeline and that's good for everyone so you know i i really really hope that we don't get another Dion waiter situation with cam i i don't think we will and fingers crossed we don't but because he does have the potential to be so much fun despite how frustrating almost every other aspect of his game is i will say this though if houston somehow ends up with jalen green kevin porter jr and cam thomas they might as well just put two offensive rebounders in the game besides those three guys because nobody else is shooting the ball. The, the, they won't have many turnovers, though, because there won't be any ball movement, but that, that that's a whole other discussion. Eight turnovers a game, six assists a game. <laughs> Ideal basketball. <laughs> there you go. All right, anything else you want to cover here before we wrap things up? Anything you want to plug before we go? I'm going to keep trying to get plug in these scouting reports out um work is super hectic right now so kind of hitting a backlog on these and we're only two and a half weeks away from the draft so i think i'm just gonna try and 
release one final draft guide top 100 probably late next week about a week or so before the actual draft um so I, I think it'll make more sense to do that instead of doing a top 75 here in the next couple of days and then the top 100 a little later on so i'm gonna do my best to be getting a bunch of content out uh all the way up until draft time works a little busy so try, trying to balance the balance the two all right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And you can find his draft work on the hashtag basketball website, hashtag basketball.com. And certainly when Tyler does release his final version of the Top 75, Top 100, we will cover it in the podcast that we do right before the draft on Thursday, July 29th. So definitely be on the lookout for that as well as the individual prospect deep dives on the website. You can also find his work on Canis Hoopus, and you can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. In addition to this podcast, I also appeared once again on the Ed Robinson Show last Wednesday. Thanks to Ed for having me back on the program to talk about the U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, which certainly was a lot lot more fun of a conversation to have last week than it would have been this week after their two <laughs> exhibition losses, but that's how it goes sometimes. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using, and if you have any feedback about the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.